Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. So on page 1003, if you're using that blue Bible, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. I don't know what I just told you a minute ago, but it's Hebrews 5, 5, 1 through, whatever. 5, 5 through 10. There we go. And remember that what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he is laying out all the reasons why the Jewish Christians have chosen the better thing. Because Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than even the great high priest. And that's where he's at in Hebrews as he makes this statement starting in chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That was Psalm 16. As he also says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's from Psalm 110. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I want you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 20. That's page 372. You'll need to have it open for the whole sermon, as you know. So I want you to have it there, and we're going to read it as we work our way through the sermon. So, dear brothers and sisters, what I have read to you from Hebrews and what I'm about to read to you from 2 Chronicles, it is the life-giving, corrective, instructing word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O righteous God, through your Spirit's aid, grant us new eyes and new hearts to clearly comprehend what we are about to hear and to unmistakably absorb what you are about, we are about to receive for the honor of Christ's crown and covenant. Amen. You may be seated. So for those of you who are visiting, we're doing a sermon series through First and Second Chronicles. It's called Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. And this is where we are in Second Chronicles. Pastor West started you out in the life of Jehoshaphat in chapter 17, 18, and 19. And I'm just going to tell you, Jehoshaphat is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And I will tell you why in just a minute. My friends, as we get ready to get into things like this, a story like, for example, Jehoshaphat, there's far more than maybe originally meets our eyes. It's kind of like me and plumbing. You want to know where all this came from this morning? I got scratches and blood that came out everywhere because I was plumbing yesterday, last night, and the plumbing, I think, lost. We'll see. I think I won. But I got in there, just like happens. If you ever do plumbing, you know what I'm talking about. And you get in there, and things break that weren't supposed to break. This repair was supposed to last 30 minutes. <laughs> At the end of three hours, I was fit to be tied, but got it done. Hoses broke, shouldn't have broken, all that stuff. There's more, usually, than what meets the eye. It's kind of that way with Jehoshaphat. And you'll notice that the reason why Jehoshaphat, well, maybe you won't notice, but you'll notice that Jehoshaphat is... Very pious. From chapter 17, even to the very end, he's very pious. But if you're honest, you will realize that Jehoshaphat is a knucklehead. So he's a pious knucklehead. This is why I love Jehoshaphat, because I have friends in the Bible. They're just like me. 
pious knucklehead. And if we think this through, we realize, we recognize, we confess, yes, it's too easy, all too stinking easy to become and be a pious knucklehead. So just keep that in the back of your head. We're going to just jump in. So notice the sermon outline is on the back of the worship guide with lots of notes. And so the very first two verses is the crises. The crises did not come out of nowhere. The crises is because of chapter 18 that Pastor West talked about last week. Jehoshaphat married an ungodly daughter of an ungodly king. And he aligned himself with that ungodly king and threw all of his military forces into the defense and the progress of that ungodly king. And so the defeat at the end of chapter 18 means Jehoshaphat was defeated too. Jehoshaphat was defeated too, and therefore his military might has been decimated. His knuckleheaded decision in chapter 18 caused chapter 20. After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hezazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Here's the crisis. And notice that the crisis is because of the consequences from Jehoshaphat's earlier stupidity. Now, I just have to say this if you didn't know this, that Jehoshaphat is forgiven, but God doesn't wipe out the consequences sometimes. Sometimes we have to carry the consequences of our sin and stupidity long after we've been forgiven. And that's what you see happening here. And so the defeat in chapter 18 has caused all the other power-hungry nations around to smell blood in the water. Oh, Jehoshaphat's had the upper hand for years, but now he's weak. He lost with King Ahab. Okay, boys, it's time to get him, and now's the time. Yeehaw! That's kind of how it went. Probably not the yeehaw part, but anyways... And so his alliance with the ungodly Ahab caused this alarming situation and condition. But as much of a knucklehead as Jehoshaphat has been, he is still a pious knucklehead. He is a pious knucklehead. And so notice he immediately, starting in verse 3, he cries out to the Lord. So let me read 3 through 13. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord. All capitals there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Is your English translation telling you that in the Hebrew is God's personal name? He sought the Lord. He didn't seek Baal. He didn't seek Asherah. He didn't seek Milcom. He didn't seek uh, Ra. He sought Yahweh. He set his face to seek the Lord, to seek Yahweh, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to help seek help from the Lord, from Yahweh, from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord, Yahweh. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, in the house of Yahweh, before the new court. And he said, O Lord, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Here now he's quoting King David's prayer from 1 Chronicles 29. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. 
Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying... And here now he's quoting, paraphrasing, and summarizing Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 6. Quote, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, and pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. End of quotation. And now behold, the men of Ammon and, and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before Yahweh with their little ones and their wives and their children. Notice that Jehoshaphat is a pious knucklehead. He really does believe the Lord. That's how his story begins. You go back to chapter 17. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. He really did believe. He was just a knucklehead. Making ungodly alliances with the ungodly and receiving the results of that ungodly alliance, the consequences. He is a pious knucklehead. And notice he cries out here. Notice his cry has three parts to it. First off, it is biblical. Jehoshaphat rehearses many of the prayers of earlier godly people in First and Second Chronicles. For example, as I already mentioned, David. When David prayed at the, as everybody was giving lavishly to the temple and David prayed and he said, you know, um, you're the God of all heaven and in your hand is power and might and in your hand it is make great and give strength to all and so forth. He's quoting that at the first part of his prayer. He quotes Solomon's prayer, summarizing it, but quotes Solomon's prayer at the, at the dedication of the temple. When Solomon said things like, Lord, when all these things happen to us because we deserved it and we sinned and we come to this place or pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive our sins and heal. Right? And so he's summarizing but quoting that prayer. And he also is quoting his father Asa's prayer in 2 Chronicles 4, 14 and verse 11, especially when he says down in verse 12, we're powerless against this horde. We do not know what to do. Our eyes are on you. We're completely, we completely rely on you. It's just his way of saying that. So Jehoshaphat's cry was biblical in its words, but Jehoshaphat's cry was biblical in its approach. Verse 3 and 4 should tell you that. There's one phrase or one statement or one concept that's repeated three times in verses 3 through 4. Can you tell me what it is? See, who said that? Raise your hand. All right, good. He deserves a gold star. Seek the Lord. The biblical approach. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal the land, heal the kingdom. 
And so Jehoshaphat's prayer is biblical. It's biblical in its words. It's biblical in its approach. But secondly, it's bold. This prayer is grounded upon the relevant pieces of God's story. You go back and you look at in verse uh, 7. He talks about how you gave us this land. You gave you promise to Abraham we would have this land. That's part of the promise you made. And you're a God who's faithful and you keep your promises. And then a little bit later he says, and remember when you brought us into this promised land, you told us not to attack those three people groups. We didn't attack them. We did what you said. You said. And so we did what you said. And now look how they're paying us back, right? He's building his prayer boldly upon relevant pieces of God's story. But he also lays out the present facts. That's verses 10 through 11. And yet these people are attacking us. This is how they're rewarding us. Here's the present situation. Now, I think that's important, brothers, sisters, friends. Because when we're praying, we sometimes don't want to offend God. You know what I'm saying? So we lie. Or we keep a secret. We don't want you to know how bad it really is, Lord. I don't want you to get your feelings hurt. Right? We need to get away from that. He tells him, this is the situation. It's not that God needed to know that. God already knew that. Who needed to say it? Jehoshaphat needed to say it. You need to tell God the situation you're in and quit sugarcoating it. It's part of the boldness of the grace of prayer. And so he he grounds his prayer on relevant pieces of God's story and lays out the present facts. But notice that the basis of his boldness is the very conviction of who God is. Verse 6, you're the God of heaven, you're the king of all the nations. Verse 6, you are our God, the God of our fathers. Verse 7 and 12, you are our God. It's based upon who God is. And so, in his prayer, Joshua's prayer, Yahweh's words and deeds in the past are being appealed to as evidences and as arguments to him to do again a similar work in the present. This is a hugely different concept than name it and claim it. I'm going to tell you from experience, name it and claim it as you tell God what to do and you demand it of Him. You boss Him around, and that is wrong. This is, God, here's how you've been faithful in the past. You did this, you promised that. Ah, we're in a similar situation now. Come and do it again. That's a bold prayer. I believe you. I know you can do it. I am totally dependent upon you. It's a bold prayer. So it's biblical in words and approach. It's bold. And thirdly, notice it is believing. Full-bodied conviction. Jehoshaphat declares his his entire dependence upon God for deliverance. That will come out clearly when you get to verse 12. Because of the defeat, his defeat in chapter 18, and his military strength being diminished, he rightly says, first There's three parts to verse 12. The first part, we are powerless against this horde. We are powerless against this horde. We've got no competence. We've got no strength without you. We've got nowhere that we can expect any help. There's none to boast of and there's none to trust to. We are powerless against this great horde. And then secondly, he goes on to say, we do not know what to do. 
Now, I don't know if it's a human thing, but I know as an American, and especially know as an Oklahoman, that we don't like saying that kind of stuff, because, hey, we're fix-it people, you know what I'm saying? I love fixing things, not plumbing, mind you. And sometimes we take that into counseling or caring for other people. We want to fix them. And we act like, and we saunter around, and we talk like we do know what to do. And then when it all messes up, well, it's your fault, not mine, Alan. Sorry, Alan. You, you must have What an honest statement. We do not know what to do. The distress is desperate. We're quite at a loss, Lord. We are in dire straits. We acknowledge that we do not have, we do not have the cognitive nor imaginative capacities to figure this thing out. Our vision statement that we spent months crafting is bankrupt. Our, our mission statement that we spent a year working out, it is blank. We don't know what to do. And then thirdly, and yet our eyes are upon you. It's another way of saying what King Asa said in 2 Chronicles 14.11. We rely on you. From you is all of our expectation. Our eyes are on you. It's a very picturesque way of saying we are seeking you, Lord. My friends, that expression is an exalt, an acknowledgement of humble submission, entire dependence, and patient anticipation. You heard it in our call to worship in Psalm 123, Psalm of Ascents. When David says there, says, we look to you, Lord, just like a servant looks to his master, just like a handmaiden looks to her mistress. We look to you. We're utterly dependent upon you. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Our eyes are upon you. It's a bold, it's a biblical, it's bold, and it's believing. That's his cry. He was a pious knucklehead. And hopefully as you recall that, it'll shape and help you with your prayers as you pray. And so God, who stands ready, as he promised in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, who stands ready to hear, forgive, and heal, brings comfort. And that's verses 14 through 19. And the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. So he's a priest, he's part of the choir, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh to you. Now as I start reading this, think, where have I heard these words before? Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jer Jeruel. And you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord of Yahweh on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed tomorrow. Go out against them and Yahweh, the Lord, will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before Yahweh, 
worshiping the Lord, Yahweh. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Notice the comfort. Jehaziel comes as a prophet of God and he announces God's comforting answer, an answer that follows the prayer. And the answer is this in a nutshell. Jehaziel, Judah, my people, yes, what I did do in the past, I will do in the present. What I did in the past, I will do in the present. And you know that because God's answer actually quotes Scripture too. And it goes all the way back to the days of Joshua as Joshua was preparing to enter the promised land. And do you remember the very first words, some of the first words that God says to Joshua? Do not be, and do not be, thank you, yes. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. He's going all the way back to Joshua. Look, just like I helped my people, your forebearers, back then, you ain't got no reason to be scared, y'all. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. He says it twice here. And then he goes even further than the times of Joshua. He goes all the way back to the Exodus. It's down there when you look at verse 17. He goes all the way back to the Exodus. There's Israel, just left Egypt. And they're stuck because right in front of them is the Yom Kippur, the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, the Red Sea. There's no way to cross it. And then they look north, and what do they see coming down upon them with all of their military might? The newest, bestest, fastest military machinery, these chariots, hundreds of them coming in great hordes. Who do they see coming at them? The Egyptians, thank you. Yes, it's an impossible situation. There's nowhere to go to be saved. And so they do what every godly person almost always does in that situation. <gasps> oh, why did you bring us here? It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and die. Okay, maybe you don't do that. But I do that, okay? It's all right. And Moses says to them, and God is actually quoting almost directly here in verse 17, the words of Moses from Exodus 14, verse 3. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which He will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. God is responding to Jehoshaphat's prayer. What you did in the past, do it now. And He says, okay, what I did in the past, I'm going to do it now. Jehoshaphat and his people then receive these assurances, this comforting answer with thankful reverence. Notice how their bodies are involved in their baruch, baruching, they're blessing God, they're praising God. They bow at their faces. Jehoshaphat kneels over. The people get on their knees and bow down. And the priests get up and raise their hands and shout loudly God's praises. Their bodies, their posture is into their praising. It's okay to put your body into your praising. They receive God's comforting answer. And so God brings then once more conquest. It's verses 20 through 30. Let's read with me. Verses 20 through 30. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and all and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here's the 2020 principle. 
Believe in Yahweh your God and you will be established. Believe His prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to Yahweh, to the Lord, and praise Him in holy attire. And as they went before the army and... Uh, uh, as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to Yahweh, to the Lord, for His steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, Yahweh, the Lord, set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come out against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Mount Seir, are you ready? Get ready for this phrase. They helped to destroy one another. Never forget when allies turn on each other, when nations divide in civil war and churches split, it is God's judgment upon His people. Said and shown to us again here. So when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. And they were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Berachah, the valley of blessing, the valley of Berachah, for there they blessed the Lord, they blessed Yahweh. Therefore the name of that place was called, has been called the Valley of Berachah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For Yahweh had made them rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, the house of Yahweh. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that Yahweh the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So, the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So notice that the next day, as they go forth, instead of Jehoshaphat calling them to arms, Barking out orders, fall in, keep ranks, observe the marching orders, fight valiantly. Jehoshaphat instead, verse 20, bids them, 2020, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. Jehoshaphat bids them to believe in the Lord God and give full credit to His word in the mouth of His prophets, assuring them that they will succeed and be established. My friends, this is what rallies a man or a woman with true courage and braces a person's heart in shaky, shattered times. This is what steadies a congregation in the face of insurmountable odds. The resolute belief in the power and mercy and promise of God in all of our spiritual conflicts and otherwise. This is victory. This is the reservoir of our success. I love the way John put it. We read it in the, the, the reading before our confession of sin. For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, 
our faith. What is this victory that we have? Except this, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not the quality of your faith. It's not the quality of my faith. It's the quality of the one in whom you have faith. And there's where our victory lies. And that's what you see happening here. They believe. My friends, we need to see how rich God is in mercy to those who call upon Him, who call upon Him in truth. Even when we're being pious knuckleheads. And we need to see how often He even outdoes the prayers and expectations of His people. Jehoshaphat and his people prayed. Prayed for what? Prayed to be delivered from being spoiled by the enemy. And God not only answered that prayer, He answered it and upped it by a power of ten. They prayed to to not be spoiled by the enemy, and so Yahweh delivered them and then gave them their enemies spoil. Okay, you didn't think that was cool. I think it's awesome. Let me say it again. They prayed to be delivered from this being spoiled by the enemy. And God not only delivered them, but enriched them with the spoil of their enemy. He answered their prayer bigger and bigger than they had ever anticipated. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Ephesians 3, verse 19. So what do they do? They set up a memorial place, very fitting, a valley. It's probably right there in the middle of the battlefield where it was supposed to be, this valley. And they call it the Valley of Blessing, Barachah. So that way, every time they walk that way and take up, you know, drive that way, well, they didn't even drive, but, you know, they ride their donkeys or whatever. Every time they go by there, they would remember what God had done in this place. It was a memorial. When Ann and I were on vacation, we liked to stop at historical markers. Sometimes we miss them because usually the sign that tells you the historical marker is just ahead forgets to tell you uh, in five feet. But anyways. But we stopped at one. It was really pretty cool. It was the naval battle. Of Oklahoma, it was the, about J.L. Williams or J.R. Williams or something like that. It was the name of the ship. Did you know Oklahoma had a naval battle? Isn't that crazy? In the Civil War? But we did. And that memorial stone was set right there to tell us that there was one day a naval battle. Stan Wadey came over because he was a Confederate gen- uh, general and he took over this ship and blew it up. It was a naval battle. But it was great to read this memorial stone. Every time they would pass by the Valley of Berakah, they would remember Oh, our God saved us and gave us even more than we asked for. And so they come home rejoicing and with joy. And then that last verse, verse 30, there's security and rest all around. I hate to say it this way because I don't like hearing me say it this way, but I think this is the way to say it. They're now actually better off because of the crisis. They're actually now better off because of the crisis. God's ways are in no way like our ways. And so, dear friends, if your crisis brings you to the place where you're just like this, utterly dependent upon the Lord, crying out to Him, utterly, totally dependent upon Him whose steadfast love endures forever, and I think you will often find that you're better off because of the crisis. 
Don't pray for a crisis. I'm just telling you. Ah, but then there comes this cloudy set of blips. There's two cloudy blips. And it starts when we pick up in verse 31. And I'll point them out as we go along. Thus Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. Do the math, he was 60. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Silhi. He walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of Yahweh, of the Lord. Now, the high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. There's the first cloudy blip that the historian, the inspired historian, brings up that's on his radar. And it's totally unexpected. It puts a sobering tone underneath all of the melodious music and merriment. Not everyone at church was on board. With all of that religious showiness, for crying out loud, all that exuberance, that demonstrable faith and faithfulness. Possibly, those folks were saying or thinking, well, maybe that was fitting for the crisis. But please, y'all, please, don't go overboard with your religious enthusiasms. All this reviving and reforming stuff. I mean, now that the heat's off, surely we can return to the status quo. Not everybody's heart was set to seek the Lord. So they were hiding fiends still. There's the first cloudy blip. The second one comes up as we move on. Now the rest of the Acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. And that's where I would have stopped Jehoshaphat's story if God had asked me to write this story. But I'm not inspired by the Holy Ghost. And he told the, the inspired writer to go one more step just to remind us again of one thing about Jehoshaphat besides the other. Here it is. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, an ungodly king of Israel. Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eleazar, the son of Dodavahu of Merashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, Yahweh will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. Oh, that's right. Jehoshaphat was a pious knucklehead. And the story of Jehoshaphat ends on that flat tire. Oh yeah, pious knucklehead. Well, my friends, how do you apply this word of God? Let's work our way through quickly. First and foremost, central in some ways, Jehoshaphat, even as a knuckle, even even because even in spite of the fact he was a knucklehead. In some ways, Jehoshaphat is a demonstration of our Savior, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Several ways, but let me just give you two. To begin, he cries out to the Lord with a wholehearted and joyful trust in God. Dear friends, see Christ our Lord over there in the wilderness being tempted by the evil one, and yet his commitment is there. He will not give in. And then see our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faces the damnation of God on behalf of his damnable people. And he wails, he cries, he cries out. 
And that's what the writer of Hebrews is bringing up in Hebrews 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. It's a picture, Jehoshaphat, it's a picture of our Lord Jesus crying out in the midst of the crisis. Oh, that's right, he cried out too. But further, his faith, Jehoshaphat's faith, leads him to face the kingdom's enemies with powerlessness, weakness, defeat, and political suicide by the world's standards. In your eyes, immediately your heart goes, wait, that sounds like Jesus. It does sound like Jesus. Who could have instantly called down 12 legion of angels. That's 12 whole regiments of angels to deliver him. Yet, what did he do? He refused all the angelic and atomic helps to go to the cross. Why? For us and for our salvation. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile or return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jehoshaphat is a picture of our Lord Jesus, at least in a couple of ways. But also notice that this whole episode should instruct us in the importance of prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14 is the heart of this story, of Jehoshaphat's whole story. But especially here, he humbled himself and prayed, and all of God's people humbled themselves and prayed and sought the Lord. I, just, I hope by the end of the series, everybody's going, man, oh, we become a big praying people. Hallelujah. That'd be awesome. Hope everybody's encouraged to teach us, instruct us in the importance of prayer. But finally, we need to take all of Jehoshaphat's life together, the good and the bad. So chapter 17, we're told that Jehoshaphat did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 6, chapter 17, verse 6, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. My friends, I don't want anything else on my tombstone. When I am dead and gone, I hope my kids can with utmost integrity put on my tombstone that one statement. I know they'll have, talking to each other, they'll say, yeah, dad was a knucklehead. Dad's a knucklehead. But I want that on my tombstone. It's hard. Courageous in the ways of the Lord. And it just goes on. In chapter 19, even after he's, he's done a knuckleheaded thing, still God knows that his heart is courageous in the ways of the Lord. He still knows that he's pious, that he trusts in the Lord. And so the end of the story, you get down, he, he tells everybody in chapter 20, believe in Yahweh your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And then when you get to the very last set of verses, when you get down to verse 32, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. There's all of that. But then there's also the other side, the darker side. He married an ungodly daughter of an ungodly king and made an alliance that he knew he shouldn't have made. And he did it and he threw himself in and his stupid stupidity and his knuckleheaded sinfulness 
brought decimation and consequences upon himself and upon his people. You put all that together and you think, wow, is this legit? Is this the way Christians are? Yes. You come to recognize that believers, the godly, are a mixed bag. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, when I am surprised, I am not surprised that Christians and godly people and leaders stumble and fall at times. I'm surprised when Christians are surprised. From Genesis 3 to the end of the New Testament, God's people are a mixed bag. We bumble and stumble along. Growing in holiness is a messy, rocky, disappointing, and sometimes heartening affair. But notice what the Lord did not expect from Jehoshaphat. He did not expect sinless perfection. How do I know? Because he did not withhold his applause to Jehoshaphat until there was entire faultlessness. What does he do? He honors Jehoshaphat's memory for all time. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Yeah, but didn't you see? I know. But his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. That's God's own eternal memorializing of Jehoshaphat. He does not withhold his applause until there is entire faultlessness. He he honors Jehoshaphat's memory for all time. Because even in spite of all of his knuckleheadedness, he was pious. He really believed in the Lord. He really did seek the Lord, even when he was making bad decisions and alliances. And notice that God does not whitewash this. Jehoshaphat's faults are still called out. The yellow penalty flag has been thrown a number of times in Jehoshaphat's story. If you football fans, that should have rung your bell. But I appreciate the fact that Jehoshaphat, you will notice you read his story, he never shifts the blame. He never says, yeah, but. He never says, well, it was Fred's fault. It was my wife's fault. It was those Moabites and Muonites and Irmites and whatever else's fault. He never shifts the blame. Instead, as Pastor West mentioned last week, He was open to godly correction. And so I ask you, are you open to godly correction? But here's the high point. I'm going to end here. Just hold on. God's memorializing evaluation of Jehoshaphat was all because, not of Jehoshaphat, but because of God's grace. Think about that. It's all because of God's grace. My friends, when we know that, when we get it and it gets us, then we can take heart. I'm going to try not to cry. Because one day, we will hear our Lord Jesus give the same grace-grounded, memorializing evaluation. Well done, good and faithful servant. What are you talking about, Lord? Don't you know? Yeah, I know. Now go ahead. 
He's talking about me, okay? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in these little things, and I'll put you over this. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Brothers and sisters, you will one day hear those words, and what's going to come out of your mouth is simply, besides hallelujah and singing the choir song. That was a great song. Singing the choir song. You're going to say, the only way I got here was God's grace alone. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. We are so grateful for the story of Jehoshaphat. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't whitewash it. Thank you, you didn't whitewash it. Lord, some of us find ourselves in tight cahoots with Jehoshaphat, pious knuckleheads. And thank you that you still save and love pious knuckleheads. I pray that you would be with each and every one of us, that you would draw up our hearts in adoration of you and gratitude and thanksgiving. And Lord, we long for that day when we will finally hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And know that you will say that not because we were great people, but because you're a great Savior. I pray for anyone here today who thinks they're just too stinking bad for you. That their stupidity is just too deep for you to save. I pray that this has struck their heart and they will come running to you. In Jesus' name, amen.